the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into hour three, I was just kind of thinking about a couple of things, uh, as we've discussed and as you may have otherwise heard. Uh, Rona McDaniel was reelected to the chairmanship of the Republican National Committee by a pretty big vote. Uh, better than two to one, she defeated Harmeet Dillon. And something in the back of my head was just thinking, especially given our conversations earlier with uh, the vote coming up in Arizona for the chairmanship of our uh, state party, and um, something kind of I do from time to time, which is take a look back at where we were a year ago, exactly a year ago. I was looking at what I was talking about this day, 365 days ago. And it was funny enough, interestingly enough, about what the Republican Party is and what it means. And it was based on an essay in the Wall Street Journal by Joseph Epstein, who's a scholar at the University of Chicago, one of our, on our team at the University of Chicago. The essay was titled, What Are Republicans For? In short, the essay started asking what conservatives are for. And Mr. Epstein, long a teacher over at Uchai, as they call it, or the University of Chicago, which is to say saturated in the collegiality and intellectual geography of people like Alan Bloom, who I quote often, and once upon a time, Leo Strauss, who is Alan Bloom and Harry Jaffa's teacher, and a whole school of academic thought most people think of as conservative. Mr. Epstein, in his piece, pointed to our movement's brightest of lights we need to better understand. He named four. Adam Smith... Alexis de Tocqueville, Frederick Hayek, and Roger Scruton. As I have pointed out before, I think each of those authors and thinkers are critical reading. I've read them all and reread some of them, especially de Tocqueville recently in our conversation with Pete Peterson. And yet, and yet there's a funny thing about those four people, isn't there? Have you put your finger on it? Not one of them is an American. Two Englishmen, a Frenchman, and an Austrian is who he cites. Smith, Tocqueville, Hayek, and Scruton. Which doesn't dictate in any way whether their thought is right or wrong. I've long believed sometimes the foreigner understands us better than we understand ourselves, like the Cuban emigre to America who, after listening to Ronald Reagan extol the luck he had of being born here, said to him, you're lucky. I had some place to go to. Or like to Tocqueville's understanding of our democracy or Marquis de Lafayette's or John Stuart Mill's understanding of the Union cause in the Civil War or Leo Tolstoy's understanding of Lincoln or G.K. Chesterton's book on what he saw when he came here in America. But still, is there nothing to be said for American thinkers about conservatism or an American brand of conservatism? Is it too much to think that if there is a wandering from our principles in civic health, maybe there is a pharmacy here that can help? Or a doctor? Let me put the question more strongly. If there's a problem with American conservatism, are there no American contributors to conserve thought that should be investigated? 
What, after all, is it conservatives in America are trying to conserve? I'm going to bet the first answer from anyone in earshot is, well, America. So no guidance about looking to our Declaration of Independence or the brain and writings of Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton or James Madison? What about the following century and Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Webster, whose entire public career was dedicated to distilling Jefferson in the Declaration? And in those natural rights view of the world and humanity and our cause, do we have nothing to say? Or how about in the 20th century? It's not as if we don't have giant oaks of our own either, from William Buckley to the previously mentioned Alan Bloom or James Burnham or Whitaker Chambers or Harry Jaffa or Walter Burns or Irving Kristol or Norman Podhoritz or any number of names that could fill this monologue. Charles Kessler gives it to us this way in but one example of how conservatism American style is at war with things that redounding to Hayek will not get you to or get you to addressing. But Madison would, Jefferson would, Hamilton would, Lincoln would. Heck, our country was the only one founded on this very axis. It is this. The prevailing liberal doctrine of rights traces individual rights to memberships in various groups, racial, ethnic, gender, class-based, etc., which are undergoing a continual process of consciousness raising and empowerment. This was already a prominent feature of progressivism well over a century ago, though the groups have changed since then. Before Woodrow Wilson became a politician, he wrote a political science textbook, and the book opened by asking which races should be studied. Wilson answered, we'll study the Aryan race because the Aryan race is the one that has mastered the world. That's what your progressive Wilson wrote. The countries of Europe and the Anglophone countries are the conquerors and colonizers of the other continents. They are the countries with the most advanced armaments armaments, arts, and sciences, he wrote. Wilson may not have been a racist in the fullest sense of the term because he expected the advanced, sorry, he he expected the less advanced races over time to catch up with the Aryan race, but his emphasis was on racial and group identity, an emphasis that liberals today retain. The only difference being that the winning and losing sides have been scrambled, but it's still to them all based on race. Today, the white race and European civilization are the enemy. Dead white males is a favored pejorative on American campuses. And the races and groups that were oppressed in the past are the ones that today need compensation, privileges, and power. Conservatives, by contrast, regard the individual Irrespective of race is the quintessential endangered minority. They trace individual rights to human nature, which lacks a race. You get that only in the American founding. Human nature also lacks ethnicity, gender, and class. Conservatives trace the idea of rights to the essence of an individual as a human being. We have rights because we are human beings with souls, with reason, distinct from other animals and from God. You get that only in the American. We are not beasts, but we are not God or gods. We're the in-between thing, the in-between being. Conservatives seek to vindicate human equality and liberty, the basis for majority rule in politics, against 
the liberal constitution's alternative in which everything is increasingly based on group identity. That's what we're talking about restoring, isn't it? And for that, you go to the University of Chicago or Claremont, or you used to. You don't, I guess now you could go to Hillsdale. You, you don't go to the 18th century England. Charles Kessler, again, writing, until about 1774, America had in fact argued in favor of various conservative adaptations of the British Constitution to colonial conditions. But from 1776 on, they insisted on new, emphatically Republican constitutions of their own design, of their own design based on the unalienable or natural rights of man. To quote John Adams, quote, there is no good government but what is Republican. And the only valuable part of the British Constitution had been Republican, in effect, if not intent. The British political tradition contained valuable principles then, which were sound, not because they were British or traditional, but because they were good, i.e. in accordance with human nature. We founded our country on those good, the good principles in accordance with human nature and made them uniquely American principles. The British, as nobody never did or did not. Kessler again, the equality of citizens under law, free employment, opportunity, other aspects of tax policy. These are moral questions, too, when seen from the point of view of American principles. But the moral case for them often goes unmade by conservatives who are so depoliticized as to shun any appeal that cannot be reduced to a matter of efficiency, economy, interest, or tradition. Now, tradition can be a great and good thing, of course, but it is never so merely because it is traditional. Slaveholders had their ancestral ways, too, didn't they? To, t to tell right from wrong within a tradition or among traditions requires a moral standard that has a validity or goodness independent of the tradition. It requires a principle, an abstract principle. Yet even in the familiar social disputes that currently royal our politics, conservatives seem cut off from the principles of the American Revolution. They invoke things like, Traditional family values, for instance, as though the phrase itself were traditional. It is in truth a very recent phrase that tries inadequately to characterize and defend the American tradition of Republican or Democratic family life, rooted, of course, in the precepts of the Bible and nature. Even worse, they invoke traditional val values or traditional family values as though being traditional were enough, were sufficient. In practice, this phrase often means little more than the family values that a majority in the past or present would like to see prevail. The populist conservatism of the last few decades converges here to produce a kind of historical majoritarianism, or what G.K. Chesterton called the democracy of the dead. But wanting to keep family values traditional, that is to say majoritarian, does not establish that these values are inherently good. Uncomfortable with moral argument, conservatives increasingly rest their case for moral legislation on majoritarianism, precisely because it appears to relieve them of the need to make moral arguments. They assume that they do not have to show why certain human arrangements, for example, are wrong. If they can show that most Americans disapprove of it, the abortion issue might be an exception to this tendency precisely because conservatives cannot point with great assurances to majority support 
for their policies without reading the polls wrongly. On the premise of traditionalism, then the conservative movement is ill-equipped to recognize, much less to rescue a country largely defined by its allegiance to universal principles of justice. This is not to gainsay the common conservative view that America's recent liberal revolution is akin somehow to the various communist revolutions of the 20th century, nor that all of these contemporary upheavals are descended ultimately from the French Revolution. But these latter or later revolutions were most assuredly not extensions of the American Revolution. You know how we started to take this seriously in a serious way? It was after the torching of cities that were accompanied by a trashing of our statues, which is to say our history, and the trashing was indiscriminate. Toss out Robert E. Lee as much as Frederick Douglass or Abraham Lincoln. That was their ground war. The air war was initiated with the 1619 Project, or it was initiated anew. There had been other attempts to change all our history so as to make America look much worse than it ever knew or thought it was. It was America, all of it, the good and the not good that the radicals wanted to defenestrate and destroy. And we did something about it, finally. We did it with the 1777, excuse me, the 1776 project. And the knives came out. And the Biden administration came in. And among the Biden administration's very first acts, very first, day one, happened on his first day in office. The Biden administration took down from the government websites all references to the 1776 project, and they took down the 1776 project itself as if it never existed. Very 1984 and Orwellian that. The two things, there are two things that I think can be divined from that act. One, the left takes us more seriously than we do, at least in understanding how much real history and right thinking about that real and actual history is a threat to them. And second, the cue is to what we are dealing with here in our opposition. The same thing Vaclav Havel was dealing with when he was imprisoned by his communist government and wrote the following. If the main pillar of the system is living a lie, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living the truth, which is why it must be suppressed more severely than anything else. Let's remember that. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Uh, we instituted last week a new feature here on Fridays with the two producers, uh, Bill and David. Uh, what did you learn this week? Uh, we'll start with David and attach it to the other thing he does that's always so cool when he comes in, which is uh, he uh, always wears a, uh, a political uh, a, a political pin. It's, sometimes it's a lapel pin. Sometimes it's just a little bigger than a lapel pin. And uh, we talk a little little bit about what it represents. How far? What's the farthest back we've we've gone in history with this stuff? Well, on the show, I think Wendell we've Wilkie. gone back to 1940. 1940. The oldest I have, I believe, is 1906. All right. Well, don't ruin it by telling you what it is. Uh, we don't do. Uh, we don't really check this out. But you wore one today um, that just warms the cockles of my heart because I knew and worked for this man a long time. 
you have a Jack Kemp for president uh, button. Um, that would have been his race in 1988. It's great in 88. Jack Kemp in 88. And um, I'll tell you about that race. It was interesting. Uh, he ran in the primary against the vice president, sitting vice president, George H.W. Bush. And the other two uh, serious candidates in that primary were uh, Pete DuPont uh, of the famous DuPont family and I think former governor of Delaware, if I'm not mistaken, and Pat Robertson. Pat Mm -hmm. Robertson, of course, was the head of the uh, Christian Coalition, um, which hadn't become the Christian Coalition yet. He formed the Christian Coalition out of his presidential campaign. And Jack thought to his, um, as far as I know, to his dying day, but at least whenever I had conversations about that race, Jack thought that were it not for Pat Robertson, he would have won uh, the primary. Something nice to say about George H.W. Bush, um, you can go to cspan.org and watch several debates between Bush and Kemp. Um, uh Jack Kemp wanted to debate George H.W. Bush, and you wouldn't think that a vice president would want to debate, um, but he did several times in the 1988 campaign. To his credit, I think Jack licked the floor with him. Bush was not known for his uh, agile or or great rhetoric, and Jack was. Jack was a very quick thinker, very quick on his feet in many senses of that word, given his biography with the NFL and uh, was it the NFL bill or was it the AFL? Could you? Was, it was both with the NFL and the AFL, and um, and he was just a very quick wit. Uh, but Bush H uh, W did end up uh, winning winning the nomination. It was kind of a fight, David, that had legs because in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was nominated for president, and uh, I believe the convention was in Detroit, Michigan. He had not quite selected a vice president yet, and there were some negotiations, you may recall, with Gerald Ford. Yes. And uh, ultimately, he uh, that wouldn't work because Gerald Ford wanted a co-presidency. <laughs> and Henry Kissinger is secretary of state. Yeah, yes. it just wasn't going to happen. You can't, you can't do that. Um, but the, the conservative movement in America said, come back from Detroit with Kemp or don't come back. Kemp was who – the conservative movement wanted Reagan to pick as his vice president. Ultimately, Reagan's Baker campaign consulting team ch- uh, said, "No, you got to you got to satisfy the moderates," and they went with uh, George H. W. Bush. So this was a whole segment of me not talking to you, but at you. <laughs> Stick around. That's all right. I'll let you talk. Yeah. All right. Sorry. We'll let you. Uh, Answer what you learned this week, and we'll talk a little bit more about Kemp for president and Kemp for vice president when we come back on uh, What Did You Learn This Week Friday. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. As we're doing a little nostalgia uh, with uh, David Dahl, my associate producer, for a moment. Jack Kemp, by the way, you should know um, – would have been hugely familiar with my monologue. Um, He was a huge fan of Lincoln. He was a huge fan of Harry Jaffa. Uh, Perhaps the greatest current living scholar of Abraham Lincoln is a man, we've had him on the show before, Alan Gelzo, now at Princeton. He dedicated his first book on Lincoln 
It's a great book to Jack Kemp. Jack was very studied in Lincoln and natural law and this founding. And it was kind of interesting. We're talking about Jack because David Dahl came in with a with a lapel or political pin uh, for Jack Kemp's quest for the presidency. Did you guys prepare? You said you prepared a little audio from when Jack was running for vice president in 96. You want to air it just to give people a little flavor and taste of uh, of the old man? Our goal is not just a more prosperous America, but a better America. An America that recognizes the infinite worthwhile of every individual. And like the good shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one stray lamb. An America that honors all its institutions, the values that moms and dads want to pass on to their children. An America that makes the ideal of equality a daily reality. Equality of opportunity, equality in human dignity, equality before the laws of mankind as well as in the eyes of God. An America that transcends the boundaries between the races with the revolutionary power of a simple yet very profound idea to love our neighbors as ourselves. We must remember all that is at stake in America's cultural renewal, not just the wealth of our nation, but the meaning as well. Today, more than ever before, America's ideals and ideas grip the imaginations of women and men in every corner of the globe. And isn't it exciting? Isn't it exciting? to think that it's 1776, only this time, all over the world. You know, I was at a memorial. uh, I was at a lot of memorials when he died, but I was at one particular one seated next to a journalist people may or may not remember, used to write for the New Republic and was on the McLaughlin group, Morton Kondracki. And uh, they played a video of uh, a video montage of Jack. And Morton turned to me and said um, he was never appreciated enough in his time. And it seems to me that's our quest uh, or charge as conservatives now. When we find such great, raw, and and unique talent, appreciate it so that we don't have to go down these mistakes. Think about what a different country and party and movement we would have had if Jack Kemp were the president in 1989 rather than George H.W. Bush or the vice pre- vice president in 96. Anyway, David, I have been filibustering. Did you want to <laughs> say something about Jack Kemp? You wore the pin. What oh, made you buy it? What did you think about it? Why are you wearing it? What made it buy? What made me buy it is just because I, I have the collection and, you know, it's <laughs> one more. I've actually got three of these, so I'll make yeah. sure to give you one. Okay. Yes. Well, I have, I have only two magazine uh, magazine covers in my studio here. And uh, this is just such a unification of all the themes. Uh, again, I, I was Jack, Jack's chief of staff for a while. But um, one of them is a national review with a picture of Jack Kemp. Uh, and the title is Kemp Gets Tough. That's uh, from 1988 when he was running for president. And the reason that has a particular resonance, that very magazine, is because um, it aired in the hands of Tom Selleck playing Magnum P.I. in 1988 in the eighth season of Magnum P.I. Magnum is smoking a cigar in a three-piece suit reading that magazine with Jack Kemp on the cover. And I had mentioned it on the show some years ago. I said, if anyone has that magazine and there are archives, what I wouldn't do to get it. And a good friend of the show is a guy named Dexter Dugan, who is a uh, journalist in town. He brought, They're all on my desk, right? I mean, there's he brought me a stack of... 100 National Reviews, and 
He brought me that one, and all he asked for was to come on the show and chat a little bit. So that's how we got it. So Kemp, Magnum PI, America, David. Did you tell me what you learned this week or not? I, I haven't yet. Do you want to know? Do well, we have time? If you can do it fast or you want to do it on the other side of this break. We'll have to do it on the other side of the break, I guess. Uh, all right. Yeah. As I go to break, let me put in a word for our sponsors at Y-Refi. You've probably heard me talking to you about them. And if you have questions about Y-Refi, they want you to call them at 888-Y-Refi-34 because they can put you in touch with a lot of satisfied customers who are happily investing with them. How's your IRA doing, folks? Would you like your IRA to be earning strong fixed interest rates and not be dependent on the stock market or Joe Biden's economy? Did you know you can invest with Y-Refi through an IRA or other qualified funds? You can keep your investment, including the high fixed interest rates you earn, tax-deferred. That's right. Your money can stay in your IRA, and you don't have to pay taxes on the income you earn. 888-Y-REFI-34, or check them out at investyrefi.com. That's investyrefy.com. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Now, propriety on this uh, segment of What Did You Learn This Week would have me, have me first go to uh, my chief producer, Bill, who uh, has something he learned this week, he tells us. But I have been in semi-dialogue with David, the associate producer. So for the purpose of comity, let's just keep it with David for a moment. Bill, if you don't mind, we'll get to you in a moment. Also gives you time to make it really perfect, whatever it is you've got boiling in that fertile mind of yours. All right, David Dahl, what did you learn this week? I found this fascinating, a bit of music history. So in 1975 or thereabouts, and the Bee Gees were recording all those great hits for Saturday Night Fever, they were starting with uh, Staying Alive, which, as you know, is the title song of that movie. While they were in studio recording that, their drummer had a uh, family emergency, and he had to leave. He was feeling very sick, but it was more of an emotional sickness. I believe his mother was dying. So after about 16 bars, he left. And uh, as far as I know, his mother did die, so it's a good thing that he did leave and go to her bedside. But uh, the Bee Gees were perplexed. They had no idea what to do. They had no drummer. Yeah, they had no drummer. So what they did was they took the 16 bars that this drummer uh, recorded, and they had it on a reel-to-reel. Oh, wow. And they were going to just put it on there as a, as a practice session. And so they looped it, and they had it on a reel-to-reel, and they looped it. Mm-hmm. And then it got so long that they started recording over it, and they added more layers to the mix and the guitar riff, and the entire uh, backing of Staying Alive is a reel-to-reel of only of about, 16 bars about of drumming. 16 bars of drumming. No kidding. And get this, it gets even farther. Yeah. They loved that beat so much, and so did the public, that they kept using it on Night Fever and uh, More Than a Woman, I believe, are the two other songs. They changed the key, changed the tempo a little bit, but they kept using the backing. We need to, uh, when you're done uh, here and before you go home for the weekend, add those three songs to our bumper for in and out would you? Sure. Okay, so it's Staying Alive, More Than a Woman, and what was the other one? Night Fever. Night Fever. Yeah, that'd be fun. Can you do that? Didn't Lionel Richie write a song for them? Yes. What am I thinking of? I'm pretty sure. Or he, Or they wrote a song for him. People all over Camelback and Indian School are crashing into corners screaming the answer to that question. Lionel Richie, is it Lady? Well, we'll know in due course. All right, Bill. No. Don't go to the keyboard. Tell me what you learned <laughs> this week. 
A dog's enthusiasm for his morning walk is in no way dampered when the temperature gets in the 30s. For most dogs, that's true. I think there's a weight threshold. I think they have to weigh more than 15 pounds, which begs the question as to, well, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, We're in the same place. We're in the same place. (laughs) You're picking up what I'm putting down. (laughs) It's true of Dagny the Wonder Dog. It's true of your dogs. Yes, this frigid cold permafrost means nothing to Dagny as it means nothing to your beast, right? And and they want to go. They let you know too, don't they? Sure do. It's usually not at a time convenient to yourself, is it? Of course not. That's also not in the considerations of a dog. Right, right, right. This is the time at which I would like to uh, – that's a good thing of learning, uh, and I don't know what we can do with that knowledge except to um, – for our fellow canine owners know that they're not alone in this problem if they have it and also let people know that um, if you're going to get a dog in Phoenix, get a parka. Do you wear the earmuffs in the whole bit? I sure do. Do yeah. you? The extremities get the coldest. The extremities get the coldest. Uh, Yes, that's true. Legs and head, I think, is where you lose your most heat, right? Yeah, I've got to have the gloves, too. Groucho Marx is one of my favorite lines of Groucho Marx. David, you don't have a dog yet, right? Yet is the operative word. Yes. Um, Please make it a big one. (laughs) Look at a Leon. Well, then I have to have a big place. (laughs) Well, yeah. But, you know, the office could have a. As a mask, you could bring it here. We've we've held a vote on whether we should get an office dog, and the unanimity of the vote was yes. My, my vote is still for Dagny. Well, no, she can't come here every day because she's she's um, the purpose of the office dog <laughs> was to give it a new name based on like Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan, and the whole theory was. Over nights and over weekends, various members of the staff would take it home and deal with it. All right. I'm not letting Dagny go to other members of the staff to deal with. Um, So it can't be Dagny. So anyway, I asked the GM, Jim, if we could do this. And he said, pull the staff. I pulled the staff. They all said yes. Then I showed them what the dog was, which was a Leon burger. And there really weren't any no's until I brought it to Jim with the answer. (laughs) And uh, that's kind of where it ended. So I guess I guess, in the truest sense of Animal Farm by Orwell, we're all equal, but Jim is more equal than others. Oh. Yeah, yeah. See what I did there? Yes. See, see what I did there? Groucho Marx's greatest line on dogs. Um, outside of a dog... A book is man's best friend. Inside of a dog, it's too dark to read. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. uh, Okay, gentlemen. uh, Are are we leaving anything on the table? Yes, we are. No, we're not. Anything, David, anything on the table from uh, uh, what you learned this week? No, I have to have the weekend to prepare. (laughs) Yeah, well, or just Monday through Friday, there's a lot going on. We are a busy country. There is always something going on in this country all right thanks gentlemen and by the way you know folks uh i don't do it enough i i hear other hosts uh are a little better at this than i am and i'm sorry it's just because i guess i get overly focused but we have a great staff here and david and bill are the two best so thank you gentlemen for what you do always appreciate it and thank you for the contributions to the show as well 
All right. So Glenn Campbell and John Denver, and we're adding some Bee Gees, right? Yes, Good. we will. And and let me know what that. Uh, I'm pre- It might be Lady. I think I think Lionel Richie wrote it for the Bee Gees, or the Bee Gees wrote it for Lionel Richie, or Kenny Rogers is involved now. All right, I've got it all confused. We'll be right back, and we'll straighten it out. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, and thanks for having a little fun with us. We started off seriously enough, and culture is serious. Uh, I I think I combobulated a few things. I concatenated a few things with regard to Lionel Richie and the Bee Gees and Kenny Rogers. Um, Kenny Rogers wrote a song for the Bee Gees um, called Lady, but also Kenny Rogers... What was it, David? What did he do? With, what was the Dolly Parton angle? The Bee Gees wrote Islands in the Stream for Kenny Rogers okay. and Dolly Parton. All right. So that was recipro- a, a nice reciprocation, I suppose. What would have been the bigger bigger hit? Lady or Islands in the Stream? I don't know. What genre you listen to. Yeah, I guess it depends on what genre you listen to. Um, all right, folks. Uh, we got the uh, election for the chairmanship of the uh, Arizona Republican Party. This weekend, Rona McDaniel will be the Republican chairman for the next two years by dint of the vote that took place in California today. Um, our task is to not bewail or bemoan if our candidate loses or lost. Our task is to work with them to make sure that they represent the entire warp and woof of the conservative movement within the Republican Party. If the West is going to be saved, as Harry Jaffa once put it, if the salvation of the West is to come, it will come from the United States of America. If the salvation of the United States of America is to come, it will come from the Republican Party in the United States of America. And if the salvation of the Republican Party is to come, it will come from the conservative movement within it. And if the salvation of the conservative movement is to come, it will come only by a redounding to the first principles of all of that, which are to be found in the Declaration of Independence and our commitment to liberty and equality. So um, principles over personalities, folks. Let's get to it. We have a lot of work to do. God bless you all. Thanks for spending some of your week with us. I am Seth Leibson for David and Bill. God bless you all. We'll see you Monday. Class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.